Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. In this episode, we're talking about electrifying home heating with air source heat pumps. This is not new. We've talked about it before. Many people, many programs are trying to encourage people to electrify uh, their homes, eliminate fossil fuels as much as possible. This can make a big difference in CO2 emissions, which is the primary policy goal. In this episode, we're specifically talking about low and moderate income folks, working with low and moderate income folks to help them electrify their homes. You'll hear the abbreviation LMI, and that's what that stands for, low and moderate income. If you aren't familiar, you'll hear that a few times. In this episode, I talked with John Harrod. John is a home performance contractor and HVAC contractor in central New York. He started a company, Snug Planet, several years ago, though he is now merging with Halco, a larger uh, HVAC and home performance uh, company in New York State. Both firms do a lot of work in low and moderate income homes. John really knows his stuff. He really knows what's up with heat pumps. I learn a lot every time I talk to him. I also learn a lot from his blog posts. If folks uh, haven't checked out his blog posts on Green Building Advisor, I would recommend that you do that. They are really informative. Uh, We can link to those in the show notes. My first question for John was pretty fundamental. Why are we talking about electrifying low-income homes? Not because equity is not important, but because heating with heat pumps doesn't always lower costs. being here, John. I have to pause and scratch my head on electrifying, making electrifying low and moderate income houses a priority because I hear, you know, I see and I hear from weatherization folks, a lot of these homes are heated with natural gas and heating with natural gas is still less expensive than heating with heat pumps, usually, often, certainly in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. So why... It's just big picture. Why is electrifying low and moderate income houses a priority? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things that are worth considering. Um, one is that we're talking about a, a really big chunk of our housing stock. This is not a niche market. Um, uh, low income is often defined as... Uh, below 60% of the the median income. And so you're looking at, you know, roughly 30% of the population uh, falls into that category. And so if we want to move our entire system towards low carbon solutions, we cannot leave the the low income uh, demographic behind. Um, I think that the issue of cost savings is is really critical uh, in thinking through this issue because uh, low-income households tend to spend a much higher portion of their, their total income on energy. And so if we don't find a way to reduce their overall costs, we haven't succeeded. Um, and that includes, you know, the cost of purchasing the equipment, uh, the energy costs over the lifetime of that equipment, plus any costs associated with uh, maintenance and repair to the system. So we need to think about all those costs and, and making sure that those uh, um, are actually serving the interests of, of, of the people we're trying to help. Um, I think that one of the things that we're seeing is that there are certain specific scenarios where electrification and heat pumps can save people a lot of, of money. Um, and the big one in our area, which is, is rural upstate New York, is people who are uh, living in rural areas and don't have access to the natural gas uh, system. So they're typically heating with oil, propane, electric resistance, uh, oftentimes supplemented with some um, solid fuels like wood and, and pellets and, and coal. Um, 
all these fuels have a, have a higher cost uh, to operate compared to natural gas. And so uh, they represent a place where we can really save people money. And that is that kind of your focus? Do you, on your projects, are you focusing on homes with delivered fuels often? That is a big part of our of our market, especially when it comes to, to low to moderate income. And uh, New York State programs have really focused on uh, uh, the delivered fuels as well as, as a, a starting place. Um, so I think that's, that's a... Um, uh, one market segment that, that can really be well served by heat pumps. Um, another one is uh, people that are on electric resistance, and this includes uh, a lot of our uh, low-rise multifamily. Um, these are, you know, typically, you know, one to three-story apartments. They might have. 24 to say, you know, 75 units uh, that are all electric. Um, so they're already, you know, quote, electrified, but their their costs are, are very high. Um, and so uh, these can be helped a lot by, you know, targeted application of, of cold climate heat pumps. That makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And, and you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned... Well, a couple thoughts. I'll go back to like the delivered fuels thought, actually, because we did some we did some consumer research for uh, uh, sponsored by Nyserta, New York State, and we found that you know most people don't know anything about heat pumps, regardless of income level. Mm-hmm. The driving the driving force behind people's interest in heat pumps is. Is it cost effective? Is it going to save me money in the long term, regardless of income? It was, it was really across the board, and it's a. I mean, it's a really good argument to focus on delivered fuels and resistance, like you were talking about. Do you see? I mean, you you focus more on those types of homes, those types of systems. Do you see a trend, a larger trend? I mean, are you alone, or do you really see electrification? taking root elsewhere with with delivered fuels with, with higher energy costs right um, I'm in the process of uh, joining forces my company snug planet um, with Halco energy which is uh, uh, one of the largest um, HVAC and home performance uh, companies in our area and uh, are also very committed to electrification. And I think between us, we are probably doing the the majority of uh, the um, low-income electrification work in central New York. Um, Other companies, I think, have been a little bit more reluctant to jump on board. Um, Some are advocating dual fuel solutions, which I I think we should talk about. Um, We've... uh, been leading with the cold climate heat pumps uh, going to 100% electrification. And um, so I think in our area, it hasn't seen widespread adoption. But when I listen to uh, people from um, northern New England um, and the Midwest, I'm seeing, you know, a lot of a lot of adoption there as well. So I think it's it's coming. I think it's just um, we're at the, the early stages at this point. Okay. You mentioned resistance in multifamily buildings. Are there um, are, are there different housing types that with low and moderate income households? Is there are there kind of distinct housing types that that you target or different from more market rate or higher income housing types? Is is it a different focus on, on the buildings, like the, the, the type of building? You know, our area has a really um, interesting housing stock in that we have kind of uh, a history of, of architecture that you can you can drive around uh, a town like uh, Ithaca or, or Elmira and, and see examples of, um, you know, timber frame, Greek revival houses, uh, Victorians, uh, early 20th century uh, colonials, ranches, um, and then more modern styles of housing. And uh, 
we find that all these housing types also are present in our in our low uh, to moderate income uh, sector. Um, so we see a lot of that there. A couple housing types that we see a lot more of uh, when we're dealing with LMI customers are manufactured housing, and then. Um, uh, Although we've just kind of started working uh, with these, um, the uh, the low-rise uh, multifamily, which um, in our area includes a lot of um, uh, uh, elder homes and things like that, uh, uh, one bedroom or sometimes studio apartments. Interesting. Okay. Are there particular challenges with those housing types, either on the kind of the insulation, the load reduction side, or or on the heat pump side? Mm-hmm. You know, each each housing type presents its own special challenges. Um, as we're talking about uh, heat pumps, some of the things that come up again and again are uh, panel capacity. Uh, do we have enough amperage in the panel to fully electrify this house? Um Duct capacity, uh, if we're looking at putting in a, a ducted air handler, uh, is the duct system that was there that was originally designed for uh, fossil fuels, uh, does it allow for enough airflow to make a heat pump work? Um, and then there's the, um, the load reduction issues that you mentioned. Um, in order to make a, a cost-effective heat pump system, we need to uh, essentially get the load down somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 50,000 BTUs or below. And that can present some challenges, especially in some of these older um, Victorians and, and farmhouses, uh, things like this that start with, with high air leakage and, and uh, uh, complicated geometry. You know, one of the lowest cost, lowest first cost uh, heat pumps, cold, you know, heat pumps that works well in cold weather would just be a, a, a one-to-one ductless mini split, uh, you know, one outdoor unit tied to one ductless indoor unit. They can work really well in cold weather. Uh, they provide heating, they provide cooling. Is this, and I'm thinking like here, this is here, install one heat pump. I'm, I'm kind of asking this question tongue in cheek, but (laughs) look, here's the lowest cost heat pump you could install. Yeah. Is that viable? In an apartment, in a manufactured home, in, you know, other types of low. Here, we'll install one good cold climate heat pump, use it for cooling, and try to offset as much heating as possible. Is that a viable approach? I I think there's a lot to be said for that approach. Um, We can get, you know, one-to-one ductless heat pumps um, up to... 24,000 BTUs or, or larger. Um, and the one-to-ones are relatively uh, quick to install. They have reasonable electrical requirements. Uh, they tend to have high uh, coefficients of performance and a good modulation range. Um, so in a lot of ways, they're, they're great products. Uh, the main challenge that we run into in applying those is cases where uh, they can really only serve a, a part of the house. Um, you can make a meaningful dent in people's energy use by putting one of those in the open floor plan, kitchen, living room part of the house. Uh, it still means that they will need some kind of supplemental heat in the bedrooms, especially in, in very cold weather. Um, one approach we've been looking into for the uh, the multifamily apartments. Uh, these are typically, you know, something like uh, five or six hundred square feet with a common area and a bedroom. Is uh, just putting a, a single head in the uh, in the common area of that space, and then using a um, uh, a through the wall circulator fan to move uh, heat and cooling between the the main space in the bedroom. And as you said, a lot of those homes, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of those apartments are already electrified. A lot of them have resistance to start with. So that, that may be not a heavy lift. I mean, it, it may be a, the panel size might be okay. The panel size is typically um, 
great because you know we're taking out a baseboard circuit and we're putting in a heat pump circuit that has about the same amperage. It would typically be a you know a 15 uh, to 30 amp circuit. So we're not adding a lot to the electrical load of that apartment. And we also know that we have space in the panel. Um, in one uh, project that we're uh, actually um, proposing right now, we're, we're planning to uh, repurpose the baseboard circuit. And instead of having it come into the, uh, uh, the living space to, to feed a baseboard, send it out through the wall to be a dedicated circuit for the disconnect. Um, and that way we can avoid um, having to fish new wires through the, uh, um, through the finished apartment. Uh, that won't always work. It has to be, you know, uh, carefully engineered and, and, and sized properly and so forth. But there are cases where it actually is a, a very uh, elegant solution. I would suspect, I would hope that in a, an apartment that was heated with resistance, you install a heat pump, people use the heat pump. I'm sure that's not always true, but hopefully it's mostly true. Especially if you take out the resistance heat in the living room and all there is in the living room is a heat pump, people are going to heat with a heat pump. Is that more, Am I more or less accurate on that front? Well, um, you know, one of the things we're finding is that there's there's this customer education component, uh, especially when you're trying to mix different heating strategies. Uh, what we find is that um, rural folks are often used to using a, a diversified heating strategy. So they might have a, a wood stove that heats the core of their house and uh, space heaters that are a lot more expensive to run um, in the bedrooms. Um, and so they're used to managing that. Um, how the, well that's going to work when we're mixing, uh, you know, a, a heat pump and electric resistance in a smaller apartment, I think um, remains to be seen. Um, there are controls that you can use to integrate a uh, heat pump with uh, uh, either fossil fuel heat or an electric baseboard. Um, so far, uh, we haven't dug too far into those, um, but I think that's um, that's going to be important in the future as we think about having the heat pump as the your your stage one and your electric baseboard as your uh, auxiliary and uh, and backup heat. Uh, to have that automatically controlled, I think it's going to give a lot better result than just relying on uh, homeowner education that ultimately um, can break down. Yeah, I've seen I've seen so many cases and heard so many anecdotes and actually read a lot of pretty big scale like utility program evaluations where they, you know, a heat pump will get installed in a home that already has a hydronic heating system or whatever. And they homeowners love it. It keeps their living room nice and cold. Winter comes, they turn off the heat pump and use the boiler for heating all winter and you know, the, these evaluations bear it out. It's like they, they estimate how many hours people are going to use their heat pump. And, you know, the run times are 25% of what they estimate in heating, you know, heating run time for, for heat pumps, because there's a big education issue, as you say, and it's, that's what people are used to. And there's also maybe a, maybe a comfort, uh, certainly can be a comfort implication, so you said you haven't dug into controls too much yet. I agree with you, but I also agree it's pretty can be pretty complicated to tie several different types of systems together. For now, is education the answer or are there other system designs, strategies, I guess either for low income or market rate, you know, this is kind of across the board issue that really work well. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've gotten uh, really excited about as, as what I think is going to be one of the things that really helps electrification scale is the fully ducted heat pump. The thing that uh, essentially has the same form factor as a, as a gas or a propane furnace sits in your basement and uh, 
heats either the entire house or the majority of the house with possibly a, another ductless zone split off uh, for a uh, addition or a, a bonus room or something like that. Um, that situation is set up so that the heat pump will act as the primary heat. You'll still have a uh, electric resistance coil that will, um, uh, you know, be there for extremely cold weather and will help uh, buffer the uh, the effects of the defrost cycle. Uh, but essentially, it uh, kind of steers people towards using this as their as their primary heat. Um, it becomes a lot more complicated when you've got a ductless system and you leave the existing fossil fuel system in place. I think that's that's a place where we're we're going to continually run into um, you know kind of backsliding. Um, so that's a great point. And I had this on my list of questions. Cost wise, you know, if we're talking about if we're talking about lower income households, maybe maybe more sensitive to first cost, even though there are financing and programs, which we'll touch upon in a little bit. Mm-hmm. First cost is still a big deal. How much more expensive is a fully ducted system than one or two ductless split systems? I'm sure it varies. It varies a lot, um, yeah. but if you're looking at the you know cost before any incentives, um, the the breakpoint between uh, ductless and and ducted systems is is usually somewhere between two and three heads. Okay. Um, so uh, a small fully ducted system might be you know under fifteen thousand um, dollars. And to do a, you know, a three-head system, either as all, you know, tied into a single outdoor unit or multiple outdoor units is going to be roughly in that same range. Okay. Cool. It's great. It's great to have, uh, yeah, to put, be able to put numbers on things. And I know pricing is going crazy with COVID and it, you know, if <laughs> yes. we go down, you're in central, you're in central New York. And if we talk to somebody in Westchester, we're going to get some different numbers or New York city, but it's, that's a great point of reference. So thank you. On the ducted side of things. I mean, so many questions when, when ductless heat pumps first came out, people raved about them because because they don't have ducts mm-hmm. and in in weatherization and home performance getting ducts air sealed you know sized properly insulated it's just impossible i mean it's hard to get it right in new construction and then you know going into existing homes when half the ducts are behind walls getting them tight and sizing them properly and insulating them well it, it's such a big challenge but it's kind of coming around, you know. The the limitations of ductless heat pumps for for full electrification are also hard to ignore, as you know, as we've been discussing. So, I mean, do you have an approach when you go into an existing home with a duct system? How to make that duct system good enough to to handle the heating and cooling with a new heat pump? Yeah. Um, the answer is that most of the time what we end up doing is taking a whole house approach. So we look at, are there cost-effective opportunities for insulation and air sealing so that we can bring the load down? And uh, typically the old fossil fuel system that we're removing was significantly oversized already. And it will be even more oversized once we do the load reduction. So we might have had ductwork that was sized for, you know, an 80,000 or 100,000 BTU uh, furnace. Uh, And so to meet uh, the airflow requirements of, say, a a three-ton 36,000 BTU air handler is is possible. Um, You know, we're finding that our, um, you know, in terms of airflow per BTU, heat pumps require um, more than twice as much airflow as a uh, even a high-efficiency uh, fossil fuel furnace. Um, so we need to make sure that that uh, duct capacity is is high in our um, our priority list. Um, 
we can also look at targeted improvements to the duct system, not necessarily upgrading all the supply runs, but focusing a lot on the area right around the air handler itself and specifically uh, uh, the return and the filter because that's a place where a lot of resistance uh, can be uh, avoided by you know upsizing that return, uh, using a, um, a thick uh, pleated filter with a low pressure drop. And what we found is that most of the time, we're able to uh, get these duct systems to work well. When we go and test the uh, the static pressure after we're done, we find that it's within uh, the target that we've been shooting for. Nice, cool. How about how about sealing? Do you do you have any strategies? I mean, do you seal if there are ducts in an attic or a crawl space where you can get at them? Yeah, um, attics require. Uh, special attention because they're, you know, for most of the time they're they're outside the thermal boundary and they're a place of extreme hot and extreme cold. Um, if we can uh, make a case to encapsulate that attic and bring it inside the thermal boundary, uh, we can avoid a lot of the losses from duct work. We don't see as much attic duct work in our area as I know that is common in you know downstate regions and uh, as you go further south, and that's that's a good thing. Um, with uh, duct work in furnace in um, uh, with duct work in crawl spaces and basements, uh, our primary approach has been to try to bring those spaces inside the thermal boundary. Um, and so that heat losses, uh, to those spaces still end up within the house. We still want to seal the duct work, uh, to gain control of distribution and to solve, uh, air quality issues, but, um, we don't worry as much about the thermal losses. So one other question related to ducted systems and you, you mentioned dual fuel. Um, I think, you know, I think full electrification, if you can make it happen is, is that's obviously everybody's kind of goal. That's kind of the carbon goal, the, the policy goal. And, and hopefully really for, for homeowners, if they can, if they have one heating system, that's kind of lower cost, lower maintenance, lower replacement costs when that has to go. Um, but do you, where do you see kind of dual fuel heat pumps? So, which is kind of a furnace plus a heat pump in one kind of appliance. Where do you see that being practical or viable or effective? Yeah, I will say that, you know, being a, you know, a kind of, you know, climate, uh, climate guy and electrify everything advocate, I was originally not a huge fan of dual fuel systems. And it's taken me a little while to warm up to the idea. Um, for one thing, uh, most of the dual fuel heat pumps on the market uh, are not so great at colder temperatures. Uh, when you look at um, a lot of the equipment that's out there, its uh, performance falls off pretty dramatically as you get below um, about 35 degrees. And so we're finding that uh, you know we end up switching over to fossil fuels uh, somewhere at that 35 degree. Uh, level. Uh, now, that being said, I think there are some uh, some real advantages to dual fuel systems. Um, one is that I think that people that are skeptical of going all electric, uh, this can reduce their resistance uh, to doing that. Um, it provides a level of redundancy that you don't have in a uh, uh, a uh, heat pump, a uh, cold climate heat pump that just has a single outdoor unit. So that if the heat pump portion of that dual fuel system were to uh, to go down, the compressor or the board uh, were to fail, you'd still have your, um, your fossil fuel heat for backup. Um, the downside is that you end up switching over, and depending on how you design the system, your, your switch point may be 35 degrees. If you really want to be um, aggressive about it, you might design it to work down to, to 25 uh, degrees, but then you are going to end up switching over. Um, how much of a dent that's going to make in your fossil fuel use is going to depend a lot on your climate. And 
the further north you get, the bigger portion of your heating season is below that switchover point. So um, there's pros and cons. Uh, I've been really intrigued by this uh, idea that um, Nate Adams has proposed that uh, one path to electrification would be to incentivize manufacturers to stop producing straight air conditioners entirely, uh-huh. uh, provide a uh, um, incentive that he ballparked at $400 per unit uh, for uh, manufacturers to make exclusively heat pump capable outdoor units. Um, and that way, uh, every house would end up with that capability, whether they wired it in or not would be another question. Uh, but it would essentially um, provide a, a mechanism to, to rapidly uh, uh, take advantage of that replacement cycle to get heat pumps into every house that has a central air system. As I hadn't heard that suggested before. That's interesting. <laughs> well, it started out as a, a, a Twitter thread and then uh, started getting some serious uh, traction in, in the policy world. And it's, uh, I think it's a pretty intriguing idea. Yeah, it's 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 a it's ambitious, but it it's it's certainly something to think about. I'm gonna have to kind of mull that over. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So so, do you install dual fuel heat pumps? And if we, so, kind of where? Yeah, so we do install them. Um, right now, uh, we work a lot under New York State programs, and those programs are really geared towards cold climate heat pumps. So. You know, things that uh, perform well at temperatures, you know, well below 15 degrees. Uh, they're on the uh, the cold climate heat pump list for uh, the National Energy or the, the Northeast Energy Efficiency Partnership. Um, and so the the state and utility incentives in New York are really steering us towards those, those cold climate heat pumps. Um, there are cases where uh, the dual fuel system makes more sense either based on the, the customer's comfort level or the fact that uh, um, the costs of the cold climate heat pump for their particular situation were just put it out of the out of the range. Okay. What, what are some, I mean, we've been talking in generalities. Can, can you give one or two examples of just really good success stories about electrifying lower income households? And kind of putting you on the spot. I didn't ask you to kind of prepare any examples, but do any kind of come to mind readily? Um, yeah. So um, just to give a, a couple examples of um, a couple of the projects that, that we've been doing on a, on a regular basis. Um, a lot of our rural housing in New York is manufactured housing. And... Uh, Which for... A lot of people get it confused with modular. This is manufactured as, quote, here I'm doing air quotes on a podcast, trailer type homes. Um, that's what kind of manufactured refers to. I hear a lot of confusion, so I figured I'd jump in and say that. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're built in a factory and, uh, you know, delivered to a site on, on wheels. Um, and uh, they may or may not have a permanent foundation. Um, and this makes up a big part of our uh, rural housing stock. Um, a lot of these are heated by propane and oil um, and end up being very expensive to um, operate. Uh, so one of the things we've done through this heat pump pilot program is come up with a solution uh, for these uh, manufactured homes. Uh, what we found works really well in these situations is to take advantage of the existing ductwork, which is, is typically quite um, undersized. And so we use that to serve just the kind of bedroom and bathroom wing of the house. Uh, we uh, use a um, air handler that's converted to downflow configuration. Uh, we have some custom uh, duct adapters that we have in place. And that way we get heat into each of those individual rooms. And uh, then we use a, uh, a larger ductless head, usually a um, uh, 1.5 ton ductless head to serve the, um, uh, the open floor plan uh, at the other end of the house. And uh, 
that's um, been, I think, a uh, a pretty popular solution. We're um, in, just started doing these within the last year, and we're looking to, uh, you know, evaluate uh, actual energy savings over the course of the year. But we feel like there's a lot of, of promise there. Cool. So happy customers, lower lower costs. That's so uh, yes, yes. I mean, okay. all subject to our our follow up monitoring, but so far the feedback has been very good. Awesome, cool. Um, and then another approach that that uh, we really like is is kind of a comparable uh, approach for a, a a two or three bedroom ranch that's on a permanent foundation uh, that might have just had electric baseboard and. There again, we like to use a uh, ductless high wall head in the uh, common area and a compact air handler, um, sometimes referred to as, as a pancake air handler. These are the flat um, ducted systems that can, some of them can only handle a small amount of uh, static pressure, and others are designed to run it at higher levels of static pressure. Um, to provide uh, ducted distribution to the bedrooms and bathrooms down on the other end of the house. And uh, one of the things I really like about this is that we don't end up having to put individual ductless heads in each of the bedrooms where they'd be really oversized, uh, oftentimes kind of a, you know, physically just a, a major presence. And we can better match the, the load of these rooms to the output of the heat pump. Um, so that when the heat pump modulates down, it's not continuously cycling on and off. You can get longer run times, um, less wear and tear, more comfort, more efficiency. Um, you know, just the kind of thing that I know you, you've done quite a bit of research on. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, that's, that sounds really reasonable, kind of the proper right size. One of my, one of my pet peeves is right sizing, you know, sizing the capacity for the load. Um, and as you said, you know, not finding ways not to put a head in every bedroom is I think generally good because a head in every bedroom tends to be oversized. Certainly if you've done insulation and air sealing <laughs> in my experience, it tends to be oversized, uh, with all the, the myriad problems that, that come along with that, including noise and, uh, you know, lousy dehumidification, uh, excessive uh, cycling, all those things. Yeah. So, how about in new construction? I think you, I think you work more in exist with existing homes. But do you see? Are are, are we at least? I'm very frustrated to see lots of new single-family homes or multifamily buildings get built with fossil fuel heating. Um, are you seeing a shift away from that? Are you seeing success on the new construction side? We are. It's it's not universal. Um, right now, we tend to see uh, a transition from all electric and heat pumps being kind of the uh, um, uh, the uh, realm of the early adopters and the you know the. Um, the Tesla drivers into a much more mainstream uh, market. Um, so we're seeing uh, more and more homes. I think there's still, you know, for the high-end custom homes, there's still uh, um, a big appeal of gas stoves, which is something that we need to keep working on. Um, and so the builders do end up running gas service to the house. At that point, they've already uh, invested in all that infrastructure and they're less likely to go with an all electric solution. Um, so I really, I, I do think that uh, cooking ends up being one of the key pieces of this whole puzzle because it's, you know, it's a part of the, uh, uh, it's the appliance that we interact with a lot more than we interact with our furnace or our, yep. our air conditioner. Yeah. And on like lower income new construction is, are you seeing similar progress there as far as electrification? Um, 
I think so. Yeah, uh, our um, our local Habitat for Humanity has committed to all electric uh, construction, and we've been working with them on that. They've typically been going with a, you know, a combination of a, a single um, high wall unit plus electric baseboard in the bedrooms. Um, okay. So that's the solution that they've uh, uh, come up with, and our multifamily does also seem to be going a lot in the direction of, uh, of all electric. Cool. Cool. All right. I think one of my last, we've been talking, looking at the clock. We've been talking for longer than I thought, <laughs> <laughs> but one thing I did want to ask you about before we, before we wrap is kind of programs and policies, uh, related to electrification specifically for lower income households what works now and or what would you like to see what kind of what what would you like to see out there as far as incentives or financing or mandates or right what have you um so right now new york state has some really fantastic incentives um our utilities participate in a, a statewide clean heat program that provides an incentive of $1,000 per 10,000 BTUs at five degrees. So for a, uh, you know, a system that uh, provided uh, four tons, 48,000 BTUs at five degrees, that would be a, a $4,800 incentive. So those are, those are pretty significant incentives and those are available to people across the, uh, the income spectrum. Uh, New York state has also uh launched a pilot program through NYSERDA that provides much larger incentives for LMI electrification. Uh, it's been targeted at the folks on delivered fuels or uh, electricity uh, where the highest cost effectiveness is going to occur. Um, and that's actually uh, allowed us to do, uh, you know, several dozen homes this, this last year. And I think um, I think we've done a lot of good work through that program. Uh, the costs to the state are, are quite high. A lot of these projects are, you know, 15 to $25,000 per house. Um, but they do allow us to do full electrification. Um, I think there's a couple, a couple thoughts that, that come up during this process. One is that, uh, all these incentives, both the utility incentives and the state uh, low-income programs, they are uh, per-ton incentives. And um, I, I wonder if that's, if that's the best way to, to calculate these, honestly. Um, because our, you know, our costs as installers don't increase linearly per-ton. It doesn't cost twice as much to install a four-ton system as it does a, a two-ton system. Right. Um, some of the costs are, you know, occur regardless of the size of the system. Uh, some scale with the number of heads or the complexity of it. Um, and then the equipment costs do increase uh, with the tonnage, but not, uh, you know, a doubling in cost per doubling in BTUs. So, um I think that it would be worth uh, looking into some different ways to calculate those. Um, the other thing that I think we have to really think hard about is how to capture uh, the emergency replacement situation. Because, uh, you know, uh, the majority of, of heating and cooling equipment gets replaced on an emergency basis. Uh, the right. system fails. Uh, now we have a no heat or no cool situation, and oftentimes it happens when uh, the customer needs to get that that up and running quickly. Um, the state programs uh, require um, evaluation and approvals, and uh, lead to a you know an extended turnaround time. We can usually find a way to make things happen for people quicker if it's absolutely necessary, but. Um, the real, the real key to getting into this is to find a way to uh, decrease the cycle time so that we can offer electrification quickly in an emergency scenario. That's that. Yeah, 
That's that's a tough nut to crack. I think. I mean, you 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 think it's it's a really tough one um, because you want to you know design these systems thoughtfully. Yeah. You want to size them based on envelope improvements that you're going to do. Um, I I don't have a good solution um, except to encourage people to you know kind of get rolling with these things before their system fails. Yeah. Right. And that's tough when you know, uh, people are strapped for, for cash and, and, you know, are, are putting these expenses off till they, they absolutely have to. Like we all do. Yeah. That's not in, that's not a, uh, an LMI, uh, thing. It's, it's, it's across the board. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, these have all been kind of, uh, consumer facing incentives and, I am just getting increasingly interested in the idea of upstream incentives where, you know, smaller dollar investments might have more leverage and, uh, you know, might do more to transform the market. For, for example? Well, uh, that uh, idea that, that Nate Adams had floated, the idea okay. of incentivizing manufacturers to stop producing uh, AC-only units. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's interesting. I've I've talked to folks in more urban urban areas where everybody does have natural gas. Almost everyone does have natural gas, and the number one response I get there is, "We need cheaper electricity for people that switch to heat pumps," because especially with low low income households, it's gas is cheaper, and most parts of the Northeast right now, at least, if, if not nationwide, that may change. There's talk about that changing, but um, it's not a compelling cost picture. If you just kind of, without load reduction, if you just switch from gas to, to electric. So it's, I mean, I, your rural take, I get it. You know, focusing on delivered fuels, that's definitely the low hanging fruit right now. And there's a lot of delivered fuels out there, but in Queens, there are not a lot of delivered fuels. Sure. It's there's all these disparate challenges. It's uh, do you see any? Well, I don't know. Do you have any insights on energy pricing in the future and how that may change or how that may drive demand for heat pumps? Yeah, um, I don't have any, you know, kind of deep insights into the the direction the market is going, uh, but I do see, you know. Ongoing increases in in wind and solar um, that will hopefully be driving the cost of electricity down. Um, I also, uh, you know, it's so hard to know what's going to happen with with fossil fuel prices because they, yeah. you know, they're they're tied up with these you know global political uh, um, things as well as. Uh, you know, macroeconomics. I just, I don't really know what to expect with fossil fuel prices. Um, but I think the other thing that I try to keep in mind is that getting to our electrification goals, we need to get working on it really hard right away, uh, especially if we're going to have any chance of, of hitting our, you know, 1.5 or even 2 degree uh, climate goals. But it's still going to be a a 20 to 30 year process. And during that time, we have to figure out all kinds of things, including how does a, the grid handle this increased demand? Um, how do we scale up our, our contractor network? Uh, right now, we just don't have the trained people to do this work. And so my feeling is that at this point, uh, if we can do these kind of projects cost effectively for people on electric resistance and delivered fuels, let's do that. Let's use that as an opportunity to build up our contractor network, uh, work out the bugs in the technology. Um, possibly we'll see some uh, cost drops in the equipment along with market changes in the, the energy costs. And then, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, we can really start to scale and really make um, deep inroads into the uh, the natural gas uh, market. That's perfect. We wrap up, we wrap up every podcast, almost every podcast with the question, 
in five or 10 years, what, if we were to talk again, <laughs> what would we be talking about? So dramatically improved contractor base, no, no problem <laughs> installing heat pumps and <laughs> any, I mean, is education, is that, is that maybe, well, I'll let you answer the question in five or 10 years from now, what do you think you'd be, we'd be talking about or what would you want to talk about? Um, <laughs> those are two different questions. Um, <laughs> what are we going to be talking about? I think we're going to be talking a lot about mitigation. I think we're going to be talking about, uh, uh, how do we deal with extreme heat? Um, how do we deal with, uh, grid disruptions? Um, and, uh, so that's what I think we'll probably be uh, talking about a lot. Um, I also think that we'll be talking about the next generation of uh, heat pumps, ones that uh, you know are even more efficient, that use less damaging refrigerants, and that solve problems that current systems currently don't. I think air-to-water uh, technology is going to grow tremendously, and we're going to see, you know, solutions for hydronics uh, that are better than the ones we have right now. Thank you for listening. And thanks especially to John. Again, I would encourage folks to check out his blog posts on Green Building Advisor. Really insightful and useful, uh, which is maybe even more important. Buildings and Beyond is produced by Stephen Winter Associates. We are focused on making buildings better, more affordable, healthy, efficient, accessible, sustainable, making buildings better all around. Check us out on, at swinter.com. That's swinter.com. Swinter.com slash podcast is where you can find more episodes of the podcast and all the show notes, which we will post some links here for this episode for sure. Also, check out our careers page if you are looking for opportunities. We are definitely looking for help in all our offices, Boston, Connecticut, New York City, and Washington, D.C. I just counted 27 positions on our careers page here now at the beginning of October 2021. All levels, interns, entry level, senior people, um, check it out if you are interested. Thanks again to John, and thanks much to the podcast team here. Alex Mirabile, Heather Breslin, Kelly Westby, Dylan Martello, and I'm Rob Aldrich. Thanks for listening.